surprisingly, I haven't gotten much news from them except some sparse reports, so I guess no news is good news, right? And I think they're probably doing really well. We look forward to their return and certainly um, much, much good testimony from them. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you want to open to 1 Peter chapter 2, new passage. A little delay there, yes. I want to begin a new little section, and there will probably be a couple weeks, two, three weeks in this section. I'm going to give you the introduction tonight, by the way. And uh, I'm going to probably say a couple of things that are going to shock some people. What's new? But you have, to, you have to hear what I say and put it in context. That's really important, okay? So you've got to pay attention. I want to ask you a question, and I want you to think before you answer. As you, as you consider our culture, you consider our society today, this past decade and the generation in which we're in, what do you think is the most prominent, the most pervasive, the most significant, if you will, if I can use that word, moral obligation? What's the most pronounced moral obligation in our society today? As you look around, as you consider our society. Please yourself. What is it? Tolerance. Feels good, do it. I want what I want when I want it. Don't those really speak to the to the morality of our age? I mean, all those things. Everything you said really does speak of one issue. I'm going to put it in this term: equal rights. Equal rights. Now think with me. That is, if you look around and you study, and you don't, even have to, you don't have to study. You just evaluate the society in which we live, and, and all of your responses reflected the fact that you see this dynamic so prevalent in our culture. You come to this conclusion that the only real, and I say real, sacred value in our society the most pervasive moral obligation that people point to and cling to is equal rights. Equal rights. That's basically our only morality today in our society as a whole. That's basically our only morality. We don't have any sexual morality. We don't have any ethical morality. We don't even have any spiritual standards, really, to speak of in our culture and our society today. We know very little of family values, though we hear family values trumpeted all around. Our culture and society really does know very little of family values, of true friendship values. We don't understand the meaning of love. We don't understand, really, relationships. 
The vast majority of people today in our culture do not have a clue about what it means to be in relationship. Do you know that? They don't have a clue about what relationship is all about. We don't feed into those relationships, even though we have a carefully thought out sense of values and morals. We don't live them as examples. We don't teach them in our relationships. We live largely in an environment where a values-free relationship is more to be uh, esteemed. All we have left in this culture would be this pervasive sort of moral, ethical statement of equal rights. That's the biggie in our society. Equal rights. I suppose you could say that that's probably even the new morality. The new morality. The morality of equal rights. Now I know I'm creating a question in some people's minds. Doesn't, don't we have rights? Stay with me. Stay with me. Everybody has rights in our society. Everybody has rights. Nobody, however, is talking about responsibilities. No one is talking about sacrifice. They aren't talking about privileges. I told my son when he got his driver's license, it's not a right, it's a privilege. It's a privilege. And so quickly we look at all these things, we say, it's my right, it's my right, it's my right. Everybody's talking about their rights. Everybody is into their rights. I counseled a young couple the other day, and things weren't going well. And she said, what about my rights? I said, I want you to be here this weekend. <laughs> I mean, think about it. As you look all around, it's, 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 it's my rights, my rights, my rights, my rights. Very, very, very seldom do you hear people say, what about, it's my responsibility. It's my privilege. They're not talking about sacrifice. We're into our rights. Everybody has rights. We have women's rights. We have children's rights. We have ethnic rights. We have illegal immigrants' rights. We have... Animals' rights. We have gay rights. We even have the rights of those who have AIDS, the first disease with rights. We have students' rights, criminals' rights, abortion rights, employees' rights. We even have the rights of the homeless. And on and on and on and on. You see, everybody's into rights. And if you don't get what you think is due, you take it out on the people around you, you take it out on the society, and you take it, on, take it out on whoever is in authority over you. Whoever you think has deprived you of your rights, we take it out on. Everybody's into their rights. Strikes, protests, walkouts, sit-ins, Rebellions, insurrections against governments, companies, individuals, lawsuits of every inconceivable... We, have, we are the most litigious society in the history of mankind. 
We have more litigation, more lawsuits, and what? My rights have been violated. What am I going to do? Sue. Sue them. Sue them. It's rebellion. It's absolute rebellion. All kinds of these occurrences, every conceivable kind, when people rebel against those over them who aren't giving them what they think they have a right to have. That's the bottom line. And the underlying mentality to all this, here's the underlying mentality. Everybody is equal. Everybody is equal. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Isn't everybody equal? Stay with me. Stay with me. I have a right to everything. I have a right to everything and anything I want. See, that's the mentality. That's the equal mentality I'm talking about. We are equal what? Spiritually. Especially as believers, right? But there's a certain mentality that says, I have a right to anything and everything I want, when I want, and how I want. I'm equal to you. You can't deprive me of my rights. Are you with me? You following what I'm saying? The point I'm trying to make here? If you don't give me what I have a right to, I'm going to rebel. I'm going to fight you. I'm going to fight back. I'm going to lead a mutiny against you. And I will harass you every way possible till I get my rights. Does that sound familiar? Beloved, this is the world's way. And all of us have been involved in this in one degree or another in the past. And many even today, still as Christians. But if you look at it, it's the world's way. It's the world's way. Everybody wants to get what they think they're due. And so in the workplace, we have the potential for all sorts of conflicts, protests, walkouts, strikes, now even violence and shootings and killings. Isn't that true? Why? Because that guy didn't get his way. See, we think that strikes and things like that are harmless. We think protests are harmless. But you see, in a society that knows no bounds, in a society that's thrown off moral boundaries and limits and absolutes, now all is fair game, isn't it? One violence leads to the next, leads to the next. One, one mode of rebellion leads to the next, leads to the next. Where does it end? It doesn't. It only becomes greater and greater and greater. We will see more and more and more evidence of these kinds of things happening in our culture. You say, well, but, you know, well, I was part of a strike. We struck our company and we got some benefits. Well, you may have gotten something, but you gave something in return. Well, you know, I was a Christian and if I didn't walk the picket line, I, I would have gotten in trouble. We need to talk about, we need to think about what's the role, what's the responsibility of a Christian in those environments. What does the Bible have to say? Not just what your sentiment says or public opinion says. What does the Bible, which is our rule of life, have to say about these kinds of issues? So rebellion, mutiny, protest, strike. These are all simply part of our society These are the means that our society uses to gain gratification for those who demand their rights in the social structure. Beloved, we are, believe me, we are a society conditioned. We are a society conditioned to rebellion and to selfishness. 
whether it be passive or whether it be active. You must understand that. That is a critical, critical thing as you look at our culture and society. We are a society that's conditioned to these things. It's our automatic reflex to rebel. It's part of our sinful, fleshly human nature. And the world only continues to incite it. So again, what's, what's the, what should the Christian do? How does the Christian react or respond or deal with these issues? What should be my response? What should be my response to the protests against the company in which I work? What should be the, 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 the response? A strike? A sit-in? What should we do? What should we do? What if I have an unfair boss? What if I have a cruel boss, a mean boss? What should I do? Peter gives us the answer. Peter gives us the answer in verse 18 of chapter 2. What Peter basically says, he sums it up in verse 18. Look at this verse. Slaves, employees, workers, submit yourselves to your masters with all what? Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Isn't it amazing? I mean, think about this with me. Isn't it absolutely amazing how God so marvelously, miraculously, authoritatively can take an immensely complex social system, such as the workplace environment, how he can take that immensely complex system and reduce the proper conduct of the Christian in that environment to one simple sentence. God cuts through all the arguments, all the rationale, and boils it down to one simple sentence. Read verse 18 with me once again. Slaves, employees, workers, (laughs) submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Verse 18 runs absolutely contrary and opposite to the world, doesn't it? But it is also consistent with what we have already learned in verse 13, isn't it? What what has Peter taught us in verse 13? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to what? Every authority instituted among men. Every authority. And then he goes on and tells us we need to be submissive to what? The governing authorities, the government. And here in verse 18, he calls us to submit to those who are over us in the workplace. To submit for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Those who are our bosses, for those, those whom we work. If you back up to verse 11, he tells us, he reminds us that we are what? We are aliens and we are strangers. Even though we are, even though we live by a higher standard, even though we live on a higher plane, even though we are citizens of heaven, while we're still here on earth, living in this flesh, we are to submit. We are to submit. We must function in this world as the best example of citizens. Would you agree? We, above all people, should be the example to this country, to this land, to our neighbors, of what citizenship is all about. We should be leading the parade. And secondly, he says, 
we must function also. He takes it a step further, moves us from citizens now to employees. This principle of submission, this principle of subordination is applicable to every generation of employee or slash worker. Everyone. Be submissive. Notice verse 15. This is the key verse of the whole passage. This is the key verse of the whole passage. For it is God's will that by doing good you should what? Silence the ignorant talk. We should silence the critics by how we live. That's the key passage. The key verse in this entire passage. How I am living. Whether I be viewed as a citizen or even in the workplace. That my life, by how I live it, speaks so loudly that it silences the critics of Jesus Christ and Christianity. My good living. How critical that is on the workplace. That I don't grumble against my boss. That I don't complain against my boss. I have a great boss. I, have a great, I don't ever complain against my boss. <laughs> Beloved, in this life, of doing good, may I suggest to you there's no place for rebellion. There's no place for rebellion. There's no place for rebellion against the government or against our employers. No place for asserting our rights. Now, I know for some of you, that just gags you when I say that. That just gags you. You take that up with Jesus Christ and with Peter. He says, be submissive, even to those who are harsh. And we're going to go into this more next week. I'm just giving you the background tonight. There's no place in our life for asserting our rights. That's what Peter is, in effect, saying to us. Beloved, it's not our concern to have rights in this world. Turn to your neighbor. If you're a Christian and they're a Christian, first ask them. And then say, it's not our concern to have rights in this world. Now tell them. All right, now it's enough telling. Now, that's, that's the negative side. I want you to tell them the positive side. Now, I want you to tell them the positive side. It is our concern to be obedient and submissive in this world. Do you want your reward here, or do you want it later in all eternity? Let's have a vote. How many want their reward here now? All right, one guy wants his reward here now. You have it. You'll get it, Tom. (laughs) How many want their reward later in eternity? That's where the privileges are. That's where the rewards are. 
That's where the fulfillment is. That's what the Bible teaches us, doesn't it? Pay now, play later, right? Right? So we're not concerned about our rights. If you're one who's been concerned about his or her rights, you need to get that straight right now. You say, Lord, I've been wrong. Forgive me. Especially as you're preparing to go to the communion table. I've been wrong by insisting on my rights. I have responsibilities. I have privileges. I'm called to sacrifice here. Not insist on my rights. I'll get all the rewards later. Not here. I'm to be concerned about being obedient. And about being submissive. Oh, if we could just get a hold of that. My greatest concern is to be obedient. And to be submissive. No place for rebellion in the life of the Christian. No place for rebellion in the life of the Christian. I want to point you to a tremendous example of this. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. David provides a graphic illustration of this kind of attitude. David is marvelous. And God speaks of David as a man after what? His own heart. In chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Uh, God is rebuking Samuel. How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? You see, Saul was rejected for a couple of reasons. One, because he was disobedient to God. And secondly, because he, for himself, on his own terms, usurped the role of the priest and tried to offer sacrifice when he was never called and anointed to be a priest. Big trouble. And for those two reasons, God rejected him. And Saul's rejection by God was taken very, very hard by Samuel the prophet. Because Samuel had anointed Saul and had grown very close to Saul. Saul meant a lot to Samuel. He was the very first king of Israel. Samuel had kind of discipled him. And so God's rejection of uh, Saul was taken very, very hard by Samuel the prophet. So he'd grown very personally attached to Saul. And secondly, it was hard for Samuel because Samuel knew that a change of dynasty may result in a civil war and that would weaken the nation of Israel. And they'd been battling the Philistines and those around them and they didn't need a civil war to further weaken them in that particular time. So Samuel was undergoing a significant measure of grief. And God wasn't pleased with Samuel's grief, as you hear, as you see in that passage. Because why? Samuel's grief was excessive. Samuel's grief was excessive. How long, God says, are you going to do that? How long are you going to do that? Let me suggest to you, I want to just kind of a footnote, kind of an aside here. I want to talk to you a moment just about grief. I suppose that most of us, when we think about grief, it seems, seems like almost a sacred thing, doesn't it? 
I mean, when we see somebody in, in, in grief, we're, we're really reluctant to say anything to them about it because it seems like it's such a, a sacred, personal kind of a thing. But grief can be excessive. Grief can be excessive. Grief can take on the dark color of sin. You say, how so? It can be so excessive that God will chasten it, as he does here with Samuel. Rebukes him for his excessive grief over Saul. You see, because excessive grief really is evidence of a lack of trust in God. Excessive grief. Not grief. Not a normal, heavy, healthy sense of loss, but an excessive grieving over a loss evidences a lack of trust in God. It questions God's sovereignty about that matter or that issue or that person. You're grieving, grieving. You're, you're actually protesting. You're contesting what God has done. Questioning His sovereignty. Questioning his wisdom, questioning his love by excessive grief. And that's where Samuel was. By his excessive sorrow, he was, in fact, questioning the wisdom of God. By his excessive sorrow, he was questioning what God was doing. He was questioning God's sovereign choice in the matter. And finally, God says, enough. Second half of verse 1. Get up, he says. Get up. Go fill your horn with oil. He says, and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Let's get on with it. Enough of this already. And with that begins a marvelous period of history in God's plan of redemption, doesn't it? A whole new page turns, a whole new epic, a whole new chapter opens up to us now. Because the person that Samuel is going to go to anoint, the one that God selects, his name is David. What a marked difference from Saul. David, we're told, is the least likely of all of Jesse's sons. Do you remember? Look at verse 11. Turn to verse 11. So here's Samuel. He asked Jesse, are these all the sons? So they've gone through all the sons up to this point. He says, are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, the runt of the litter. <laughs> He's out tending the sheep. See, you, just, you didn't bring him in. He's out tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. I love that. I can hardly wait to see this one, he says. This has got to be the one, the only one you have left. We're not going to sit down till he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went down to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. You never want to get God ticked off at you. (laughs) You never want to presume on God. 
Here was Job, upright. God unleashed Satan on him, didn't he? Saul, much worse condition. An evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants saw it. They said to him, see, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants, come here to search for someone who can play the harp. He will play. When he plays, the evil spirit from God comes upon you and you will feel better. Hmm. What's happened? What's happened? Well, David's anointed, right? David's anointed. David has the right to reign now, doesn't he? He's the king. He's been anointed to be the king. And Saul has been set aside. This is not going to sit well with Saul. It's not going to make him happy. Look at chapter 17, verse 55. Chapter 17, verse 55. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, now remember he's going to, he's going to kill Goliath, right? As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, O king, I don't know. The king saying, find out who, whose son this young man is. And as soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, and that was an awesome thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Remember, earlier on he's anointed, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him with power. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with David still holding the Philistine's head. Oh, what a picture. What a picture. Carrying Goliath's head in there. Amazing. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Very, very important things happen here. David is a powerful warrior, right? Saul's beginning to resent him. Jonathan becomes a tool in this, in this place. We see now Jonathan's going to become a tool in God's hands to protect David from the murderous intentions of his father. Now look at verse 6. He says, When the men returned home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with tambourines and lutes, as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Ooh. Saul was very gracious about this. <laughs> Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? He's got it all. You see paranoia setting in here? He's got the looks. He's got the power. He's got the anointing. He's victorious over Goliath. He whipped the Philistines. He's got it all. And now he's got the women singing songs to him. 
What's left? The kingdom. Do you see things mounting here? You see things mounting? Has David once, by the way, uh, asserted his rights for the kingdom? Look at verse 9. And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him, how many times? Twice. And thus we're introduced to the first attempt by Saul to murder David. Does David say, wait a minute, what are you doing? Don't you know I'm the anointed one? Does he assert himself? No. And it wasn't just once or twice, as indicated here in the passage. It was three times that Saul attempted to kill him. And to make matters worse, if you look down in verse 28, not only is David in a deep friendship with Jonathan, the son of Saul, but now, guess who's in love with him? Michael, who is Saul's daughter. Now he's got two of, these, of Saul's kids on his side, warning him, protecting him, presumably, against Saul's evil intents. And of course, later you know that David married Michael. Go to chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him. My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. And that, of course, leads to that marvelous story about how Jonathan warns David. Drop down to verse 9. Again, an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand while David was playing the harp. Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. And his wife, now Michael, aids him in the escape, covers over for him, and he gets out of town. David flees that very night. Now keep in mind something. David has been anointed king, hasn't he? David has the right to rule the nation. Does he? Yeah, he's been anointed. He's the anointed one now. The anointing has left Saul. It's on David. David has a right to rule the nation. Saul, this wicked, dispossessed man who has been given an evil spirit, is trying to take David's life. Now, question. Would you assume... That at some point in, in time, David would want to assert his rights? That David would, would David have every right to rebel here? Do you think, humanly speaking? At some point, David's got to say, Hey, I want my rights! <laughs> right? From this point on, chapter 19... From this point on, in chapter 19, where he has to escape the third time, David now becomes a fugitive. David now becomes a fugitive. Chapter 23. Turn to chapter 23. 
David is a fugitive. How long? A year and a half. He's on the lamb for a year and a half. Let's look at verse 15. While David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him to find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said, my father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. For David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. I don't know about you, but this is really getting interesting. David and his men are way, way back in the cave. Saul just happens to pick this cave out to go in and relieve himself. Can you imagine this? What would you do? Well, look at Let's see what David does. The men said, This is the very day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Let's get him. It's a setup. Let's kill him. Assert your rights. See, even his own men are telling him to assert his rights. Urging him on. Then David crept up unnoticed. How could you creep up on a guy unnoticed who's relieving himself? <laughs> this has to be a miracle. God has to be in this. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. You've got to see what happens next. Verse 5. Afterward, after he'd done this, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He was cut to the quick. You talk about having a sensitive conscience. A man after God's own heart. Just for cutting off a corner of the robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid... The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Wow. With these words, Dave rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. And then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord the King... My lord, the king. When Saul looked around him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Here's a guy out to kill him. He could have snuffed him right there in the cave. Conscience stricken that he just cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And when Saul leaves, David calls after him and bows down with his face on the ground. He's laying fat on the ground, prostrate. Is that a lesson?
That's incredible. He says, look what he says. Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? Why are you listening to gossip? Why are you listening listening to lies? He said, this day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I'm not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I've not wronged you, but you're still hunting me down to take my life. I could have snuffed you. This ought to be proof that I'm not against you. And then he says this in verse 12. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. I will not take matters into my own hands. The Lord will judge between us. Turn to chapter 26. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding in the hill of uh, Hekelah, which faces uh, Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hekelah facing uh, Jeshimon. But David stayed in the desert. And when he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. David then asked Ahimelech, the Hittite, and Abishai, son of Zariah, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? Who has enough chutzpah to go down there with me? I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to, the, went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Man, tiptoeing into the camp. Abishai said to David, Today, today, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now, let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike twice. Let me just hit him once. Just one time. Let me give it to him one time. I won't even hit him twice. You don't have to do it, David. Because David deferred last time, didn't he? David says, I will not. So Abishai steps up. Let me do it. Can you, can you taste this? But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who, who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him down. Either his time will come and he will die, or he'll go into battle and perish. 
but the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and the water jug near Saul's head. They left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Could David have snuffed him? Yeah. Now let's turn back to 1 Peter. What's the point of all of that? What's the point of all of that that we just studied in, read about in 1 Samuel? Here is a man who is mistreated. Would you agree? Here's a man who's mistreated. David, here's a man whose life was being continually threatened. Here's a man, not because of any crime he had committed, in complete injustice, in complete inequity, unfairness, who is being pursued by a wicked, evil king who doesn't deserve to be on the throne. And David does deserve to be on that throne. Here is a man who is a fugitive for a year and a half in the wilderness who has the right to be king. But does he assert that right? No. He refuses to rebel. He refuses to incite insurrection. He refuses to take matter into his own hands. He rather chooses to wait patiently upon whom? Upon God to work. He's going to wait for God to work. He says, the Lord will avenge me. The Lord will deal with Saul. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I will respect his position. I will respect his authority. I will bow my knee to him. I will not rebel. Doesn't matter how mean, how cruel. I'm not rebel. What a role model. What a role model. I doubt seriously if any of us have worked for anybody as bad as Saul. (laughs) Talk about rights. David had the greatest right, didn't he? The right to be king. Who of us, who of us wouldn't be sorely tempted to assert that right? Knowing it was ours. It wasn't illegal. To assert that right to be king. Especially when we be so mistreated. Beloved, our fallenness, our fallenness makes us want to fight back. Our fallenness makes us want to rebel. Our fallenness makes us want to complain and argue. Our fallenness makes us want to demand our rights. That's our weakness. To strike out against authority, to protest, to complain, to be insubordinate, to be submissive. Beloved, and that is sin. That is sin. The proper response is the response of David. That's the response. The response of simply committing oneself to the Lord. Turn to Romans with me real quick. Romans chapter 12. 
Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Beloved, if you're, if you're the Lord's child, if you're the Lord's anointed, believe me, no one no one will get away with abusing you. No one. The Apostle Paul affirms that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. One of my favorite verses. <laughs> Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. I'm going to get him back. No, what, is, what does Paul say? The Lord will repay him for what he's done. The Lord will repay him for what he's done. Turn to Luke chapter 6, real quick. Luke chapter 6, page 1053. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Big deal. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. Ah, but here it comes. But love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. This is whole contrary to the world. How should you react in these environments? Turn to 1 Corinthians, chapter 7. 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, page 1169. Verse 20. Each one should remain in the situation he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. In other words, no big deal. If you can gain your freedom, that's fine. But the point is what? If you get your freedom, that's fine. If you don't, that's fine too. That's all Paul's saying. He's saying stay in the position that you're in when you get saved. If you're a slave... Now remember, the slaves were being tempted because... And we're going to talk about this in more detail next week. The slaves are being tempted because now they're free in Christ to think that they should be free in the social order too. He says, no. Look at verse 24. He says, brothers, each man, each man, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him to. If you were called as a slave, stay a slave. If you were called as a free man, stay a free man. See, it's not important, your condition. It's not important, your condition. That's what he's saying. Your Christianity doesn't give you a right to protest anything in the social structure. Now remember, Peter Peter is telling his readers that they are aliens and strangers in the world, isn't he? That they live above and beyond the world. And yet, at the same time, as long as they're in the world, 
they must submit to every human institution. And beloved, you and I have, have to be workers, employees, godly people by how we live in that environment, fitting into the social structure. God designed the social structure. God designed it. And submit to those who are over us. And the whole reason for this, the whole reason that we should submit is to silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. That nobody, nobody who criticizes Jesus Christ, nobody who criticizes Christianity can look at your life, whether in, in, the, in your activity as a citizen or in the workplace, can look at your life and say that you... You give me a reason to criticize Christianity. You have a rebellious attitude. Beloved, we ought not to be that kind of people. And we want to win people to Christ, do we not? Isn't that our goal? Jesus laid his life down. Jesus sacrificed himself, what? To win people. And we are the same way. We are to lay our life down to win people. And beloved, asserting your rights, asserting your rights is not laying your life down. I want you to think about these things when we come to the communion table in just a moment. I want you to think about your own life and your own attitude. What do you like? What do you like? This is the background. We're going to get into the meat of it next time. But what do you like? What's your attitude? Have you been someone who's been, I want my rights, I deserve my rights? Have you been a pain in the neck in the workplace? Are you a pain in the neck in the neighborhood? Are you someone who's been asserting yourself this way? I pray the Spirit of God rebuke you right now, and I pray the Spirit of God turn you around, and I pray the Spirit of God speak to your heart and say, you know what? Rather than being concerned with my rights, I need to start being concerned with being obedient and submissive. I need to be concerned about my attitude and my witness and my testimony in this world that we may silence the critics, but beyond that, win them to Jesus by how I live my life. People are going to come against you. They're going to be unfair to you. People are going to treat you mean. They're going to push you and push you. They're going to try and find where your goat is tied up. You never, ever let them find out where your goat's tied up. Right? And even if they find out, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You're on one course. One course. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time. I thank you again for your word. Lord, I thank you for your instruction. And fathers, we attend now to the communion table as we approach your table, as we are reminded once again of Jesus and what he's done and his example, and as we look forward to his coming again, oh God, we want to be in that crowd that is received by him. Let our lives be a testimonies that we are indeed Christians. Lord, not in word only or name only, but Lord, in our attitude and our very life and how we live it. I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts and strengthen us. From the youngest of us to the oldest of us in this room. Lord, search our hearts. 
see if there be any rebellious, deceitful, hurtful way in us. God, break our hearts over our foolishness and our sin. Break our hearts over our selfishness, our willfulness, our worldliness. Cause us to be people who hunger to be more like you. Thank you, Lord. The communion servers are going to distribute communion now down through the rows. If you're with us and you've never taken communion with us and you're a Christian, we encourage you to take communion. And the protocol is very simple. The trays will come. The tray of matzah will come first and then the juice will come second. Take one of each and hold on to them. Use the intervening time to do some business with the Lord. Speak to Him. Talk to Him. Remember Him. Look forward to His coming. Confess your sin if you need to. Repent of stuff. And then after everyone's served, I'll come together and we'll all come together and we'll take communion all at once.